This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and today I'm joined by Thomas Mail, the founder of FE International. Thanks for joining me, Thomas. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me in. Before we get started, a quick piece of follow-up where uh, you may remember back in episode 247, I talked to Laura Young in London about the event that we ran called The Developer's Path, and I wanted to let you know that that video is now online, and you can find a link to it in the show notes of this episode in your podcast player, or go to giantrobots.fm and find the episode there and the link. And uh, I really enjoyed participating in the event, and I hope you enjoy watching it. So Thomas, we travel in similar circles and through the the many people that we've worked with in, in the community, particularly the Ruby community, have either worked with you to buy businesses or sell businesses. And so we thought it would be great to sit down and share what you know with the audience. What does FE International do? Uh, so FE International is a advisory firm that works with owners of SaaS, e-commerce or content-based online businesses. Um, and we work with them to sell their business. Um, mm-hmm. And we might get involved at a very early stage, help value the company all the way through to exit planning, helping them make their business more valuable through to the, the final sales process and actually getting money in the bank and walking away and moving on to other projects. Cool. What brought you to Boston personally three months ago? So we opened a London office um, in 2010, transitioned over to Boston in 2015 mm-hmm. uh, we chose Boston because we wanted to keep our London and Europe presence we have clients all over the world and Boston is a five hour time difference to London mm-hmm. if you went like some of the other obvious options like LA for example is an eight hour time difference right. which communicating within a team we very much have like a team process to to everything uh, would be quite problematic Yeah, and then we kind of narrowed it down on the, on the east coast we wanted to be in a kind of metropolitan city we wanted access to good schools we wanted a bit of a thriving tech community so we could Mm -hmm. hire really good people um potentially like being near or find find clients uh so it really kind of got narrowed down to new york miami or boston we ruled out miami because the main advantage of being there probably would have been access to the south american Mm -hmm. or spanish-speaking market which is in our industry at the moment, not really that big. Mm-hmm. So we didn't see a huge amount of potential there. New York, to be honest, we just discounted because it was kind of like a bigger, louder version of London. <laughs> uh, and then Boston, I mean, fantastic schools. It's a nice city. Culturally, it's quite similar to London. And it's also really well connected. Yeah. I guess similar to New York, but you can fly everywhere, usually direct. Mm-hmm. It's an easy flight from London. Time difference is perfect. Yeah. So it ticked a lot of boxes in that respect. Yeah. We have a London studio. I just was there last week, and all, everything you say is true. <laughs> um, really like London. Really like Boston too. So, how did FE International get started? So, back in 2010, I was at college. Oh, I was just about to finish college actually. Yeah. And I had been, I think, as many students do, messing around trying to find ways to make money for uh, a long time without having to get a real job. And I stumbled into the world of websites by someone I, I worked with on an internship. And I was doing a business degree at the time. 
and I figured, hey, why not apply something I've learned in my business degree and try kind of buy things and then sell them for more, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of the the underlying fundamentals of all business. Websites seemed like an interesting opportunity at the time. It's kind of interesting in the online world. So I started at the time buying very small websites for talking wow and then i was effectively just repackaging them not in a particularly good like technical way or anything like that yeah and then selling them for more so that kind of like how much more we're talking turning say a hundred dollars into a thousand dollars yeah and then a thousand dollars into three thousand dollars and then it effectively compounded from there till i got to the stage where i was quite regularly selling sites in the four to low five figure range myself but Obviously, at that age, I didn't have any access to capital, so mm-hmm. expanding was quite slow. Um, so I launched a, a course in 2010 teaching people how to buy and sell websites for profit. And that, I guess, through a little bit of luck and probably quite a lot of hard work, did really well, got really popular. And the revenue from that course was enough to not have to get a job, open up an office with the, the cash from that, and also... Um, kind of like registered a proper company, mm-hmm. started hiring people. I think most young people, when they get a bit of a windfall, they'll go spend it all on random stuff, but it all got invested back into business. And then off the back of the course about buying and selling websites, stumbled into the advisory world because people started asking for help mm-hmm. to sell. They're like, hey, I've read the course, it's great, but ultimately I don't want to do the work myself. Can you do it for me? So that's what I started doing. And I kind of liked the opportunity because didn't really need any cash to be an advisor. You just needed the skills. Mm-hmm. I had the skills, had none of the cash. So over the years, we've always bought and sold our own businesses as well. And we still have a pretty sizable portfolio, primarily in the SaaS industry at the moment. Yep. But that's a, a separate team at the moment. It's run by a separate CEO. And it's kind of pretty much independent from FE. And we just continued growing. Like we've primarily been word of mouth driven business. Mm-hmm. Sell If you sell a business for someone, they'll no doubt talk to friends, peers, depending how influential they are. They'll bring in more and more business. Um, so continue doing that. 2012 was probably the big change for us when uh, my current business partner, Ismail, joined the company. Mm-hmm. We'd gone to college together. He did what most people who do a business degree do and went and got a real job. Uh, so he went into a corporate job in the in the UK, in an investment bank. Uh, worked for the investment bank for around two and a half years. Uh, and then I said to him, I called him up one day. I mean, we'd always kept in touch. Yeah post-university and I said hey Ismail I've got this company I've, I've built I know how to sell things but I haven't really got a clue about anything else I didn't know how to run a company I wasn't very good at kind of the hiring side the financial side the operation side <laughs> I just knew how to kind of make money and I also didn't really have the formal advisory kind of mm-hmm. skills so he joined helped formalize a lot of the processes uh, and those skill sets while we kind of clash personality wise from time to time uh, that mixture of skill sets like work really well for us um and then since he's joined we've really gone strength to strength mm-hmm. so now we're i mean across the different entities we have 28 people three different countries with offices and kind of continuously expanding yeah so you're still doing the buying and selling mm-hmm. uh, of your own that's a separate entity and you're you're advising when you say advising is that another word for broker being a broker yeah i'd say so i mean it's still effectively the same the same mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. uh the reason we we tend to call it advisory rather than brokering particularly in recent years is the deals we're doing are getting bigger and bigger yeah and at that level it does become more advisory it's you're a not bit necessarily less... taking a cut or uh, or you are so we still i mean still financially it's still the same we still mm-hmm. take 
commission when the the business sells. It's more that that relationship takes a lot longer, and I spend a, a lot of time advising clients on what yeah. to do before they get anywhere near a sale. I always say like we earn ninety nine percent of our money like working for free up front. Right. The actual transaction itself is only a, mm-hmm. a very small part of what we do. Yeah, so it strikes me that in that way you've sort of come full circle in that where you started off was you were doing the improvements. You were starting somewhere and repackaging it and and mm-hmm. selling it for more. When you're more of a broker, you're probably not doing as much of that. Like the people have done the work, they've built something, and you're just helping to communicate what the value that it has is and establishing a, a good value and then helping find a buyer. Mm-hmm. Am I yeah, off base more or less. Here? Although I'd say mm-hmm. we actually spe- we do spend a lot of time with people. I mean, this is where the background owning and running our own yeah. businesses really helps. And we've owned them in the three key areas we yeah. focus on, which is SaaS, e-commerce businesses and content-based businesses. So very much apply our experience there. And just other things I've learned kind of building a business yeah. over the years. So do you get involved with um, some companies who come to you and you end up saying, look, we can we can sell this now mm-hmm. and it'd be okay, it'd be at this, but you should really do the X and come back to us or we'll work with you while you do X because it's really going to improve things? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, our, our general approach when someone comes in is I encourage everyone to get a valuation. Mm-hmm. We, we don't charge anything for valuation. There's no obligation to get a valuation. And ultimately, until you know what your business is worth, it's difficult to give someone advice on what they should do. Yeah. Because let's say we value a business at a million dollars and you want to sell for a million dollars, then that's great. We'll move ahead with the process. But in the vast majority of cases, it's not like that at all. And the number we value the business at is not what they want to sell for. That's not necessarily that they disagree with the valuation in principle. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, your business is worth, say, 500,000 they want to get to a million dollars. And that's where the advisory side comes in. We'll work with them relatively passively, but yep. in an advisory capacity to help them do things to increase the value to get to where they want to do mm-hmm. or where, where they want to be. But that's a very personal decision. Like I can't decide what yeah. someone wants for a business or when they want to sell it by. So all we can do is kind of be objective with evaluation yeah. and then work with them accordingly. Is there a typical profile of the people who end up working with you? Um. We do deal with a, a, a real range of people. So we've completed over 500 sales now. So you have people all over the world, all different backgrounds, mm-hmm. cultures, ages. So the people, all the people that I know that have worked with you are either, you know, they're pretty small, individual developers or small group. Mm-hmm. So is that typical or is that atypical? Uh, I'd say the vast majority of our clients are self-funded or bootstrapped. Yep. Uh, they may have ranged some raise them like angel funding or like money from family and friends but the vast majority are the owner operator of the business yeah they've built it themselves grown it themselves so that'd be common for like a, a lot of our clients it doesn't necessarily mean we don't work with companies that don't have outside funding or venture funding or whatever that might be um but the vast majority will kind of be i guess you described them as self-made entrepreneurs yeah they've done it themselves if it's SaaS, for example they're probably a developer Mm-hmm. It's quite rare to, rare to meet a, a non-technical founder who's built a significant SaaS business. I mean, there are exceptions. Um, but yeah, we we tend to be dealing with the decision makers. We're usually the one dealing with the entrepreneur, not necessarily like their employee or their business yeah. development manager, which would be more common in, say, a $100 million deal yeah. where the founder 
probably isn't even involved in the day-to-day these days. Mm -hmm. So for those kinds of of people, what's the most common thing that they might be able to do to increase the value? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, it's usually just the basics. So so most people, it still surprises me today how many people don't really keep track of their financials properly Mm -hmm. um, or they don't know their metrics. So again, going back to SaaS, there are so many tools out there these days. If you're using something like Stripe, products like Bear Metrics, Chart Mogul, ProfitWell, which are free or or cheap to use, so you can know all of your metrics without having to be a financial. So since you started back in 2010 and 2012, we now have things like Bear Metrics and Stripe is much more. Is that has that changed your business or helped? It's definitely helped things. Um, I think it's also made things easier for buyers, and valuations have definitely been increasing over the years. As I would say everyone's become more sophisticated yeah so the average seller is better prepared for more knowledge better access to tools brokers and advisors i mean when we started in the industry there were very few out there mm-hmm. we now have nearly eight years of experience 500 transactions in that time you, you really do learn a lot um, and then from a buyer side there's lots and lots of buyers joining the industry and it's getting to the stage now where it's relatively mature yeah. it's less wild west than it it used to be but the third-party tools really do help. And it means that, I guess, you don't have to spend as much time as a business owner running things like reports and trying to figure out what your metrics are. Mm-hmm. It's just a click of a button and it's done. Which I guess is why SaaS businesses, from an acquisition perspective, are so popular in the first place. Because SaaS tools in general are becoming like an invaluable part of mm-hmm. people's lives. Mm-hmm. Whereas you go back five or ten years ago, it was desktop software. Whereas businesses like that it rarely even come around anymore yeah so if owner operator someone who started a small SaaS business um isn't using things like bare metrics and mm-hmm. and those kinds of things putting that in place would be a really good yeah thing absolutely to i mean we always encourage people to install it right away and then it, again i mean what people want to do to their business really depends what they're trying to achieve so depending how saleable you want to make your business, reducing your own time through systemizing it, removing unimportant tasks, mm-hmm. hiring people, outsourcing specific areas is a really good way to increase value. But if you're not thinking about selling at all and that doesn't interest you, it doesn't necessarily make sense to cut your hours down from, say, 50 a week to 10 a week. Yeah. But when you're looking to sell, that's important. So that's why it's really important to figure out like what actually you want to achieve. There's no right or wrong answer to most things. Mm-hmm. And in general, I mean, the key fundamental of making something sellable or more sellable is how transferable the business is. And that ties into lots of different things. So going back to like how much time do you spend on the business? How well systemized or mm-hmm. what processes do you have in place? Are they easy to follow for someone else? In technical businesses like SaaS, like how well documented is your code? Can another developer look at the code and pick it up? Mm-hmm. Is the developer you used originally to build a product? If it's not you, are they still available? Yep. Are they still available for the buyer? Things like using the right payment processor. So I literally just got off the phone with a, a seller who had been using PayPal for subscriptions. And the challenge with PayPal, if you're outside the US, is you can't actually transfer that account to a buyer in the US or outside of the country you're in. So move into a processor like Stripe, for example, right, um, is important because it's transferable. So yeah. ma- that seems like something many people might not realize until yes. it's almost too late. Exa- exactly. So that's why um, 
I always encourage people to speak to us as early as possible. Yeah. Because all it takes is one deal killer. Yeah. And it, it, it's usually something that you wouldn't even know or, or think right. about because there's nothing wrong with PayPal in principle. Lots of people use it. Right. It's a convenient product, but it's from a saleability perspective, it's extremely restricting. But anything that makes the business more transferable, mm-hmm. and that really varies business to business, mm-hmm. but that's the kind of underlying fundamental of saleability. I, I want to go back and call out one one thing that you said because it, it resonates. You said that the the more you can have systems or outsource things, that, that makes you more valuable um, because someone else can pick it up and buy it and continue it, right? Precisely. It's also not necessarily just from a value perspective. It's also from a saleability perspective. Yeah. You can have a very valuable business, but there might only be two or three people in the world that would buy that business or have the ability to take over that business. When you're dealing with smaller companies, mm-hmm. so in our case, we would describe that as a sub $20 million in valuation. The buyers at that level, it's in your best interest to be appealing to the widest range yeah. of buyers possible. You want to have tens or hundreds of people competing to buy your business, not mm-hmm. three. Yeah. One of the things that, that we found over the last year was not even because we want to sell any of the products that that wasn't what was driving it but we had resisted having outsourced support or bringing support people on because we really felt like no this allows us to stay in touch with the products and we don't maybe can't afford it those kinds of things and ultimately we did that and we've been working with co-support to provide support across the products and it's really good they're doing a great job and we now realize like we our time is limited <laughs> and what we enjoy doing is building products and doing design and development. And in the limited time, each week we would sort of turn our attention to the product and then spend the majority of our time doing customer support. And it's sort of reaffirming to hear not only was this just we found that it allowed us to spend our time more on the things that we want, but it maybe even makes the product more saleable that we've now that we've done that yeah so absolutely. if you're out there thinking like oh i can't afford this or it's not valuable or whatever actually it might be the opposite <laughs> yeah i'd say when it comes to making a business more saleable as well anything you do to make it more saleable will probably make it a better and more fun business to run mm-hmm. so you don't have to spend time on customer support that's good for you that's good for a buyer so right you kind of should assume you're doing it properly tie in yeah so we, we've been talking about it phrased positively, like here are some things you can do to, to set yourself up to more success. Like what are some of the things you could do that would really harm things either intentionally? You mentioned PayPal as one thing that can just sort of, when that comes up, it's a potential blocker. Yeah, so PayPal is a, is a big one. In, again, just referring to SaaS businesses specifically, yeah. when it comes to code, we deal with a lot of people who are, fantastic developers mm-hmm. and they but they might be the only one we see quite a few products where someone's built a really good product functions really well but for anyone else to come in and try and maintain that product or figure out what they've done mm-hmm. is impossible so not documenting code regardless of how technically good you are and how good the product is is the kind of thing that's a deal killer and on the outside you would never know any different because you're like well this product's fantastic right works really well looks great functions well no problems at all but under the hood it's problematic and the reason that is a problem is because 
if you're looking to sell your business, then once it's sold, you're not going to be involved in the day-to-day anymore. So if you're the only one that knows how the code works and a, a buyer doesn't and no one else in the world does, then that's going to be pretty prohibitive when it comes to sale. And we do see that quite a lot. So I always encourage people to start documenting things. And it's not just code. I guess it's anything internally where people mm-hmm. don't have things written down and someone can't come in and figure it out can make it quite unsellable. Another thing that not necessarily makes it unsellable, but definitely less desirable is where people have built a business and they've kind of forgotten about it and let it decline, which yeah. is often the, the kind of catalyst for thinking about selling. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of got bored of this business. It's not really doing that well. I'm going to sell it now. I always say to people, like, try sell your business while it's still on the way up yeah. or, the, or the very least flat. Because once it starts declining, it doesn't necessarily mean there aren't buyers out there. There are kind of no end of buyers looking for opportunities and good deals. But if you're working with an advisor or broker or whatever you want to call us, that's the kind of thing where they're not particularly attractive to buyers willing to pay a premium. Yeah. And you get stuck with the buyers who just want a really good deal. So right. it might sell, but you're not going to get anywhere near the premium you get for something that's growing or, or relatively flat. And that also is something that quite regularly happens in the sales process or very close to it. Sellers kind of take their eye off the ball and they think, well, <laughs> the business is going to sell, so it doesn't really matter. And then MRR starts to decline or ARR, depending how you're yeah. structuring pricing. And that can be quite problematic and have a short-term negative influence on yeah. valuation. It is, I mean, I would say in general, it's quite rare to do something that makes something completely unsellable. Mm-hmm. It's usually just something that affects valuation. So it's very rare for us to turn down a business because it's entirely unsellable. There's usually other factors that come into it as well. Yeah. So what is the profile of buyers then? Are are most people doing what you were doing originally or is they're buying and then working on it for a little while, improving it and then trying to sell it again? Or are most people doing something else? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I started, I'd say that the industry has definitely moved on and has developed quite a lot. I generally put buyers into three main categories or buckets. The first group of buyers are individuals or partnerships, often husband and wife teams is quite a common demographic. They're usually looking for, they probably have a full-time job um, and they're probably looking for ways to make some extra income or eventually replace their income. So I'd call them kind of almost hobbyists. Mm-hmm. Or they might just be, they might be like, for example, a developer who has a, a job in Silicon Valley making a lot of money and they just want a project to, to play around with on weekends. And they don't necessarily see it as an investment as such. It's kind of more of a more of a project. They're often the buyers we see looking at businesses below $100,000. Mm-hmm. As you go up market a little bit more or any real, any level, you then get the strategic buyers who already own a business or operate a business or bought a business in a similar space before so for them it's strategic so they might be a individual they might be a partnership they might be a company there's all ranges of bias that fall into that Mm -hmm. strategic camp can be by business model niche of size things that need fixing all sorts of different buyers that can fall into that category they could be buying businesses for twenty thousand dollars two million dollars twenty million dollars they're kind of all over the place and then the third group tend to kick in, say, about half a million and above, sometimes a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. And in, say, a year or two's time, chance of that 500,000 number will be lower, particularly as the industry gets more and more competitive. Buyers have to be more creative to get deals done mm-hmm. and maybe more flexible with their criteria. Uh, we then kind of fall into the private equity, private 
fun group um, and how those are structured really does vary but usually general profile would be has a operator or a CEO or someone who's quite technical and knows how to run the businesses and then they've raised funds from somewhere yeah and that really varies it could be institutional money it could be private money it could be friends of family it could be that they have a partnership one's the one that brings the cash to the table the other brings the operating skill and we're seeing more and more of these companies come in who are building out portfolios in all sorts of different spaces different business models different sizes um we've seen a real variety um and for them their biggest challenge is deal flow so they'll often come to brokers or advisors like us because we have most of the deal flow yeah and also from a buyer perspective and a seller perspective you know if you come to us the downside is you have to follow our process while that process is put in place for a reason and it, and it works that means that there's a lot of predictability if you are a fund and you know you have to buy two businesses a month then trying to buy privately can be quite risky and there's a lot of unknowns in there because you're dealing with a private seller and there's no real kind of knowing how they're going to behave or react through a process right whereas with us because we have a lot of control over the process mm -hmm. it can be pretty predictable ultimately you're still you're always dealing with humans at the end of the day which is an unpredictable element but the process is very predictable and time and time again so that kind of helps both parties and i think that that's why we're seeing more and more of these funds come into the industry because there's now the deal flow there through brokers and advisors who kind of add that kind of consistent process mm -hmm. in. So you take out all the unknowns of buying privately. You're probably paying a premium. Part of the reason people sell with us is you can get more 99% of the time than you'd ever get yourself. Mm -hmm. But if you're a fund and you have $10 million and you're buying businesses for a million dollars each time, then trying to buy those privately is very challenging. Mm -hmm. So they're viewing it very much as an investment. Are they expecting returns from the recurring revenue and the profit or are they ultimately expecting returns from selling the business again later on or both i would say from, from what i've seen particularly those where i've seen kind of how they're attracting investors and what they're selling investors yeah. on the vast majority are selling investors on cash flow so it's hey put in a hundred thousand dollars million dollars or whatever that might yeah. be and we'll get you a consistent return so mm -hmm. much like the very similar equivalent is buying real estate. Right. Whereas you buy real estate, you might get, say, a 7% yield. If you buy an established SaaS company, for example, at, say, four times annual net income as a ballpark range, that's a 25% return. Right. So even if you take into account, you then got a fund managing it. And again, for simplicity, let's say they take half of the mm -hmm. kind of profit to operate it on your behalf. Yeah. That's it's a 12.5% 12 12 return. Right. Exactly. Sounds like a pretty good business when yeah. you think about it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you simplify it, it sounds like, well, everyone should be doing this. <laughs> and then uh, the more sophisticated funds definitely do look at the end game, which is, hey, if we have enough businesses, some of them are going to grow, some of them are going to do really well, and we can then sell them for more. And then those who have invested in their fund or however it's structured can profit on the way out. But the cash flow is definitely the thing that attracts people about the industry. There's no tire cash up for 10 years. Mm -hmm. and you don't see a return and maybe we will make you 100 extra money which is the angel investment world yeah put in 20,000 into 20 different businesses maybe you get 100 times your money on one of them in 10 years time mm -hmm. which is why SDE or seller discretionary earnings net profit 
of the business is is so important for small businesses because buyers really do look at it as a investment and it needs to be cash flowing it's far less speculative where they're willing to buy an unprofitable company with the kind of hopes and dreams of selling it in five ten years time yeah so it's a slightly different game from the vc world mm-hmm. where they're a lot more speculative in what they're looking for so at what point i think you alluded to this earlier what point is it good for a seller to talk to you guys i'd say the kind of easy answer to that is as early as possible yeah but i mean in in reality it makes sense when you have some initial traction and your business is probably about a year old mm-hmm. so probably at the stage where the business is starting to become sellable doesn't by any means mean you have to sell it at that stage but i mean initially as much as i'd love everyone to talk to us as early as possible early in your business you should really be focused on traction and revenue growth you shouldn't be worried if you're say at two thousand dollars mrr about how to save money to make your profit higher so when you sell it's worth more mm-hmm. you should really be focused on turning that 2k mrr into 20k mrr so yeah as early as possible would be the the easy answer but really at a stage where the business is mature enough or doing well enough that you at least know what you you want to achieve yeah. there's not really any point in having a conversation with me or the team if you don't know what you want to achieve i can't really help you if i don't know what yeah what you want i mean we can give you an objective valuation but just then sitting on it and not yeah. either being proactive towards reaching a valuation target or a time target a lot of people we do have had time targets as well mm-hmm. so like my wife's having a child i would like to sell the business by then yep. or i want to go traveling mm-hmm. and i don't want to be stuck with the business anymore i want to retire all, all sorts of different things that might have mm-hmm. time-based goals so i mean the sooner you have that conversation the more likely you are to avoid those deal killers we spoke about a little bit earlier yeah and you know, have the highest chance of success as possible yeah and you mentioned before that you do the valuation part for free yeah absolutely yeah. as long as people like are kind of <laughs> honest with us up front right even like, if someone says i'm not sure that i'm ready to sell yet but i i'd like the information we can talk about it absolutely yeah yeah um we do have a paid valuation service we offer to some people but that tends to be in a situation where they need more detailed analysis for something that's not related to a sale mm-hmm. so sometimes things like they're trying to buy out a partner and they want to know what the company's worth maybe they're trying to raise money and they want to know what the company's worth maybe something to do with their tax return mm-hmm. or other worse things in personal life like divorce debt those kind of things um, that can cause people to get valuations but that's a slightly different level of um, analysis yeah you alluded to this a little bit earlier that, you, you know, when you got to that third group of investment, you said, if we're talking in a year from now, that number of 500,000 might be lower. What are some of the changes that you're seeing in the industry that are driving that? And are there other ones? Yes. I mean, firstly, I think the returns of the online world are becoming more and more attractive as firms like us, FE International, continue to grow. I think it's more attractive to come into the industry and buy companies because there's a formal process of doing it versus five years ago, there were some brokers out there, but quite honestly, most of them weren't that good. So that means both the seller would have been doing everything themselves Mm -hmm. and the buyer would have been doing everything themselves. Or the seller would just be badly represented, which is often actually worse than trying to sell yourself Mm -hmm. because a broker, particularly a slightly intelligent, malicious broker, can cause all sorts of problems. Uh, in a process you wouldn't necessarily foresee as a first-time seller Mm -hmm. um so you've got to be a little bit careful i I mean the other thing driving that is just the fact that 
that industry returns are very attractive. So lots of people from the offline world are looking at that. And even like traditional banks are beginning to look at the online world and think, well, hang on, look at these returns. Maybe we should get involved in that. I mean, the other, the other thing in general is supply from the sell side isn't necessarily increasing at the same speed as buyers entering the market. So that means there's, I guess, standard economics, there's more demand than right. supply at the moment. So prices are going up. And the other thing, as buyers who maybe entered the market two or three years ago are now getting to the stage where they've seen returns for their investors, mm-hmm. they've seen two or three years of returns for their investors, they're then coming back with a lot more money. So maybe three years ago, they raised a million dollars and they found some trailblazers to put some cash in yep. in the investment world. They're now coming back. They've made their investors say 20% yep. year on year for three years and they suddenly have 10 million or 20 million to invest. Yep. And when you're buying relatively small companies, so our average deal size at the moment, somewhere in the region of a million dollars or a little bit smaller than that potentially, mm-hmm. $10 million is a lot of deals. And if you have 20 funds like that, we're already the biggest broker in the industry. You can see where there's not a huge amount left for mm-hmm. other people entering the industry. So where the sellers come from is sort of obvious to me. <laughs> and the, or, you know, why people might find you, how do buyers typically find you? Is it just through the same channels? Yeah. So from a, a, I mean, a buyer perspective, a lot of them do come from referrals. Although mm-hmm. I'd say if you're a buyer and you found a really good place to buy something you're probably not going to go <laughs> tell all your friends about it because you're right. creating competition whereas as a seller that's not something that exists yeah uh, unless maybe 20 of your friends listed their business on the same day yeah. that might right. might slightly detract from things the vast majority like word of mouth they're finding through referrals i spend and the team spend a lot of time on content uh, whether that's kind of written content audio content or in person as well so spend we'll do 30 or 40 conferences this year speaking on stages and reaching and accessing a lot of people um, and also think as when people talk about selling their businesses the channels where sellers come from a lot of buyers read that and go oh actually i i know that business if it's sold i'd love to buy a company like that so maybe i'll i'll inquire as well yeah. so often a lot of people who are buyers are also sellers and a lot of people who are also sellers mm-hmm. are potentially buyers as well i think more and more people in the more traditional investment world are beginning to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And the thing with being a buyer, unlike being a seller, where you tend to work exclusively with the broker or advisor you choose to work with, as a buyer, you can sign up to all of the different brokers and advisors out there and you don't really have any need to build a particular relationship right. with one. Right. So lots and lots of people and brokers will often happily recommend like other companies to talk yeah. to if that's what they want to do. So you mentioned you still have a separate company that's buying and selling things on its own. Are you getting those deals through FE International? You're seeing things come across and saying, oh, we might be interested in that one. Is that how that works? Yeah, so we run that as a completely separate LLC and privately funded as well, mainly with our own cash at this stage. A lot of the deals there have come across privately and they might be businesses that FE International as an advisory firm wouldn't necessarily sell, oh, okay. but we'd be interested in buying. We do have a few that we've bought through FE International, although ironically, most people think it's the complete opposite. Yeah. But because of the conflict of interest, we're always very honest with people and upfront. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, we're interested. This is what we think the business is worth. And generally, we've made very good offers and probably paid more mm-hmm. than the market would pay. But I mean, for us, we have to do that because 
we're a business built on reputation. We mm-hmm. don't want people going around saying, hey, they screwed me over and kind of <laughs> made me take a discounted price for my yeah. business. Yeah. Um, so we've only done a couple of deals through us, yeah. uh, I guess. And I like to think we've paid pretty good, good. pretty good, good prices and given people good deals. Well, you know, thank you for your insight into all of this. I, I think that many of the people who listen to this, I think, are going to find something valuable in what you've shared today. So if they're interested, how should they get in touch with you? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks very much. The best thing to do would firstly visit our, our website. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to email me directly, it's thomas at feinternational.com. Uh, you can find us on all the social channels. So Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn. Check us out. We're always active posting new content. And I'd say for a lot of people, if you're not at the stage where you're comfortable having a conversation with us, which I certainly understand. We've got a lot of like written content out there or podcasts, for example, mm-hmm. that you can go listen to or, or read without maybe feeling intimidated by picking up the phone. Great. Well, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. That about does it for this episode of Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots. This episode was recorded and produced by Tom Albarski. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. Thanks for listening.